We started this series by saying that, that all of us need to start from, make the decision to start from this center, that Jesus is our center, and that we also need to realize and answer two questions for ourselves. Number one, who am I? You need, all of us need to answer, who am I? In other words, who did God create me to be? Who did God create you to be? Psalm 139 talks about that before the earth was formed, before you were in your mother's womb, God had a destiny, had a plan for you, for, you know, on purpose, made you on purpose for a purpose for, for such a time as this. That there's nothing that catches God off, uh, you know, by surprise. He knew this and he knew, he laid out all the plans before the earth was even formed and he had you as part of his plans. And so to be able to answer this question confidently saying, who am I? And I believe that the center that Paul's talking about, Jesus being the center, that, that your that answer to that question is discovered with those who, who know the creator, Right, who made you with that purpose? That it starts with the relationship with Jesus. That's where that's where the the, the anchor starts. That's where the, the centering starts. The second question that we all need to ask ourselves and be able to answer for ourselves is, well, what is that purpose? If I'm if I'm called of of Him and I know who I am in Christ, we can get our identity in here. Okay, what did God create me to do? What problem did God create me to solve in this season, in this time? And when we confidently can answer those two questions, who am I and what am I here for, then we can, it gives us a confidence to move ahead, even though circumstances around us can get shaken, even though turmoil inside of us can, can off-center us and, and create you know, uh, uh, you know, all the questions. It's not wrong to question. It's not wrong to doubt. It's not wrong to fear. It's just that we don't park in any of those things. Because we know and we make the decision to know that our center is Jesus, right? And that changes everything, okay? Our center is, is Jesus. And there's lots of things that have caused many of us to get off-centered and, and to throw us curveballs. And life does that, has, has a way of doing that. But if we can anchor ourselves in the hope that is Jesus, in the center that is Jesus, if we can do that and we can find our identity there, then no matter what comes at us, we're going to be able to walk confidently and boldly and, and continue what God has called us to do. Part of the, you know, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he says, this is the decision you make. And then he starts to answer these questions. And he starts to answer the question of saying, who are you? He called the, you know, the believers in the church in that time. And he says, if you are a believer in Jesus, then he says, he called them, you're an ambassador then of the king of kings. Right, that's your title, that's part of your identity is each one of us, not just those who are called the pastor, not just those who are called to ministry or full-time ministry, all of us as believers are called ambassadors or the representative of the king of kings. That the ambassador has the authority and the voice of the king and that each one of us is called to be an ambassador. And part of the job description he gives us as ambassadors of the king of kings is he says this in, in 2 Corinthians 5 or 16, he says, God uses us, Okay, as ambassadors, as believers, to persuade men and women to drop their differences and to enter into God's work for making things right between them. Right? Now watch this. Look, look at our identity, our, our, as ambassadors, our job description is to persuade men and women to drop their differences. How many think we got some work to do? Like, we live in a world that, that if, if there's not differences, we create them. We create more. Like, we're living in a world where we're, like, we're separating. Uh, it, 
It makes it makes me laugh. Come on, let's just just let's just talk turkey. Let, let's go. It makes me laugh that when Twitter changes ownership, that the ones who jumped off ship before are coming back, and the ones who were on the ship before are jumping off. And I'm like, it's just like okay, differences. Like I can't. We we don't know. We can't agree. And you can see this on social media, can't you? Like Facebook. Come on, come on. The moment you disagree with somebody, you're blocked. The moment, the moment that, that we can't, we don't, we understand somebody thinks differently than we do, we have to unfriend or we have to block and we can't be, like we can't disagree with anybody anymore. Come on, I'm sure you've had conversations at work. Work where people ask your opinion of COVID, of vaccines, of, of politics, of any of these things. And the moment you start sharing, anybody? The moment you start sharing a little bit, oh, you, I mean, you don't even have to, I don't even have to share. I just have to say, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> the moment I say I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, they know who I vote for. They know what I stand against. They know what I believe about everything. And they put you in this box. And then they automatically believe that you're not in their box. And, and they shut down. Anybody else? <laughs> Nathan, you made it, really. <laughs> All right, come on. No, this, is, this, is, this is the world we live in. And yet our identity as believers, come on, your job, your job description, my job description as believers is to persuade men and women to drop their differences. That, five people are excited about that. Like, that's a big job. <laughs> and that's not a fun job. That's not a sexy job. Come on, because come on, let's just be honest. We have our own differences. Like just because we're believers doesn't mean we're devoid of opinions. Or that we should be devoid of opinions. Like, come on. But, uh, but what do we do with those opinions, and how do we, what do we do with disagreements? And this is what Paul <laughs> writes this at the beginning of the letter. He says this, I have a serious concern to bring up with you, which is always a great way for a pastor to start a sermon or a letter, right? I've got a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends. And he says, using the authority of Jesus Christ. Now he's pulling the God card. You're going, this is, this is really bad, right? I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must, this is what he says, you must get along with each other. In other words, he says, before you can... Fulfill your calling to persuade men and women to drop their differences. You got to, first of all, drop your differences in the house. If I was to pull this crowd right here as to who you voted for in the last election, you'd be shocked. I'm not going to do that. All of a sudden, people will start moving chairs. <laughs> now, come on. If I was to pull people's opinions on vaccines or pull people's opinions on, uh, on religion, on anything, like you pull, there's going to be a mosaic. And I love our church for that, that there's differences. I love that. Right? And I love getting emails. I don't, actually, a lot of times. But I, but I get emails all the time. Pastor Ralph, we, we get emails all the time. He can attest to this. We get emails all the time going, do you know that so-and-so goes to your church? And do you know that they stand for this? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I love the fact that there's differences. 
Because Paul said this. This is, this is one thing. If we're, if we're called, if part of our calling is to persuade men and women to put aside their differences, he's saying is you got to start in the house first. Right? That we got to learn. And this is, this is something that the church, the early church, took seriously. In fact, all of Paul's letters address it. All of Peter's letters address it. John's letters address it. Like they, James, Jude, they all address this issue, this, this concern, this mandate for the church to get along. And they, they address it because Jesus did. And Jesus said to the disciples in John 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And they took this very seriously. They didn't just take this as a gentle suggestion. They took this as a command that they were to love the one another's. And this means that one another's as Jesus loved means that Jesus loved those who didn't agree with him. Jesus loved those who persecuted him. Jesus loved those who nailed him to the cross. Jesus loved everyone, regardless of stance. Right? And they, they took this mandate seriously, and, and he started with love one another, so that, that they need to love one another. But they also took another command that Jesus gave them seriously. And it's in Matthew 25, and I'll read it again. Matthew 25 is, is Jesus' answer to the question in Matthew 24. The disciples asked him, what is the last days going to look like? And Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24, you know, events of the last days. Um, and by the way, just theologically, just so that there's no confusion in here, everything in Matthew 24 was fulfilled, done, in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. And in fact, that became one of the, the, that prophecy, Matthew 24 prophecy about what the end would look like and, and, and that just the detail in which Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, that did you know that historically not one Christian, not one Jesus follower was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem because all of them knew Jesus' prophecy and fled like he told them to in the time. That, and that became one of the catalysts that, that spread the faith because people are like, because it was so accurate. But Jesus didn't just stop Matthew 24. In Matthew 25, he began to prophesy about the day of judgment and, and what one day all of us would stand before God and face. And this is what he, how he described what it's going to be like when all of us stand one day before God. And he said this, the king will then say to those on his right, and the verse before, Jesus starts describing those on his right as the sheep, and apparently in Jesus' time, sheep's good, goat's bad, okay? Because he said the sheep is good, the goat's not good. These are the ones that butt up against everything. Like, this is what Jesus said, this is, this is bad. But he said, the king is going to separate, separate the, the sheep from the goats, the good from the bad, the sheep on the right. He said, he'll say to those in the right, those that are good, he says, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the earth. This is what we all want to hear. Hey, come, enter into heaven, the kingdom prepared for you. This is what we all want to hear. And we're expecting, okay, he's going to now give us the distinguishing factors of a good Christian from a not good Christian. And I'd expect from everything that I've been taught 
you know, in, in church and everything that you've been taught and everything that we believe that the good Christian, a good Christian is those who go to church every Sunday, those who pray and those who read their Bibles and those who, you know, treat others well and, and, and those who are, those are good Christians that, you know, don't sin and don't, you know, don't associate with anyone who does. Like, I mean, these, these are the good Christians, right? Those who, who are, you know, have this sexuality and this, they have this, you know, Opinions of marriage, drinking, smoking, like these are the good ones, right? And you're expecting this is the, he's going to start listing a bunch of behaviors. And then the bad ones, well, we know who those are, (laughs) right? And this is what we expect that he's going to start. But this is how Jesus describes, he said to the ones on his right, the good, he says, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Not at all what you'd expect the conversation the Day of Judgment to be about. Because, listen, in in my theology, and everything that I've understood about Christianity, feeding the hungry and taking care of the poor, that's the extracurricular activity. That's what we do on the side, if we have enough and if we can. But according to Jesus, this is the conversation at the Day of Judgment for all believers. And I was like, I'm surprised. And apparently, so were the disciples. Because the disciples, because Jesus goes on, he says this, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and eating clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? They're apparently surprised as well. And, and the thing that kind of gets me in, in this, whole, this whole passage is, what hits me is that Jesus doesn't always reveal himself in the way you'd expect. Isn't that right? Like we have expectations as human beings as when Jesus shows up or when Jesus is in the room or when Jesus is at church. Like we have expectations of who Jesus is and what he looks like. And we, we have expectations just like the Jews had expectations of who the Messiah would be and the majority of them missed him. We have expectations, what Jesus looks like. And apparently the righteous, have, we all have expectations. They're going to go, when, when did we ever do any of those Six things, which, by the way, the six things that Jesus lists there are still the greatest needs in Lethbridge today, in, in Tabor today, in, in the city that you're watching from, that's still the greatest needs on our planet today. And, and then Jesus goes on, he says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. So Jesus gave the mandate to his disciples to love one another, but he also gave them the mandate to take care of the least of these. And, and here, I, I just want to give you insight, because I grew up in church. I grew up reading the Bible multiple times and memorizing the Bible. I went to Christian school, and we, we memorized scriptures all the time. And I've missed the importance of these two things until, until 
in, throughout the last couple years, I started studying um, the early church in the first three centuries. And I didn't study what they believed or their theologies. I'd been taught all that. I, I, I knew about the Nicene Creed and all the debates that went back and forth on the, on the church and, and what they believed and theologies they fought for. I, I, that's what we were taught. But I, in particular, started studying what they did. And I wanted, I wanted to know... What did the early church do, and what were they known for? And as I began to study the early church, I began to realize that they were known for two things. They were known for loving one another, that they were a tight-knit group who cared for one another to, to such a degree that there was no need among them. Wow. And secondly, they were known for taking care of, of the poor and taking care of the sick. And taking care of the hungry, taking care of and their hospitality, and that in fact the Romans, the Romans didn't know for seventy years that they met on on Sundays to gather. They didn't know for seventy years, but they knew before that time. They knew that man, these people are generous with one another and with the poor, and that when plagues showed up in Rome, and in the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who ran into it. Not away from it, they ran into it to take care of the sick. And then when poverty would show up, that it was the Christians who went in and took care of. And, and the Romans would actually even write, and Roman officials would begin to write and say, they, didn't, they lacked on their own, and yet they made sure no one around them lacked. I was like, wow. And all of a sudden, when I started to see how the early church behaved, I began to realize that they took the two mandates that Jesus gave, the two mandates to take care of one, to love one another, and and to take care of the least of these, they took those of primary importance. Not of secondary importance, but of primary importance. And that's when I saw that, and I began to see that this is a new command Jesus gave us, and that that this is this least of these things is a talk about. I began to change my perspective as a pastor, and you've you've heard me preach this, you know, Pastor Kelly. Again, I'm going to preach it again and again and again and again until we get it, because this is the primary importance to to Jesus. This is the primary importance for us. This is something we need to understand and we need to get. And what's amazing, this this what also is amazing, is it's amazing to me. That the Christians did this. The reason why I say that is because it's also amazing to me that the Romans persecuted the Christians, but they didn't persecute the Jews and Judaism. That Christianity was persecuted and imprisoned and all the rest of it. Judaism was allowed to prosper. In fact, they allowed the temple to go on. They allowed the worship to go on. That Rome, Rome wasn't opposed to other religions. No other religion. And yet, Christianity, Christianity was persecuted. Christianity was despised. And in the midst of all that, the Jews, this is what shocks me, the Jews were, who were given the same mandate as Christians, the Behave differently than Christians, and Christians behave differently than, than the Jews. And there was a, than Judaism. Many Jews became Christians, um, but those who did not and continued to practice Judaism, it, it, they were tolerated while Christianity was not. And, and the thing is, it's the same God. And the same mandate. Look, in fact, Moses wrote this in the book of Deuteronomy to the the law, 
that Judaism is based off of. Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 15. He says, for the poor will never cease. Okay, uh, will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, I command you, this is Moses, I command you, which the Jews take this seriously, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This was a command, a mandate of Judaism as well. And yet Christians, who most of the disciples, all of the disciples were, were, were Jews as well, had heard these commands from Moses, had heard these commands from Solomon. We'll, we'll read some of these in the Old Testament in, in a minute. They'd heard all these things, but yet when they encountered Jesus, they got it different. They received a different kind of love, and they loved different. <laughs> There's some scriptures in the Old Testament that kind of surprise me. One of the ones that surprises me the most is the prophet Ezekiel wrote the, the reason why Sodom in particular, Sodom and Gomorrah, were annihilated, that God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. And I always thought that God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. If I was to poll you, why did, why did Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed? I always thought the reason they got destroyed is because of the rampant sin, and in particular, the rampant sexual sin that was going on within the cities. That's what I taught, that God, yet the prophet Ezekiel writes this. In Ezekiel 16, he says this, Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Ugh. Whoa. This is how seriously God took it. This is how seriously the prophets took it. I'm like, whoa. Like, when you look at arrogance and abundance, careless ease, does that not describe our society? And abundance, listen, is not their sin. Careless ease, not their sin. Abundance of food, not, not their sin. It's not being generous to the poor and needy. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this. He said, he who oppresses the, the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. He also said in Proverbs 19 that one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. Whoa. And he will repay him for his good deed. This is basically what Jesus said. Hey, when you do that to a poor, you're doing it unto me. Proverbs 21, Solomon said, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. In other words, our prayer lives will be directly affected. Whoa. Proverbs 28, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Come on, this, come on, church. This is why we got to preach this. <laughs> This is why we got to talk about this. Come on, this is, this is, God takes this seriously. Jesus took this seriously. The early church took it seriously. This is part of our job of reconciliation, our ministry of reconciliation, our, part of our ministry, the one another's and the least of these. Come on. John, John wrote this. John, the disciple of Jesus, he said, he said it this way. 
He took it seriously enough to say it this way. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Oof. Wow. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, God has expected his followers to take care of the poor. The early church took this seriously, and so should we. Amen? Today's takeaway is simply the mandate of Jesus is to love one another and to impact the least of these. That's why our vision as Parallel Church is to come alongside, for, and, and our mission statement is for love and impact. We're, we're commissioned by Jesus to love one another and to impact the least of these. So next Sunday, we are going to be receiving our, our year-end offering. We, we do this every year. If you're new to our church, usually at the beginning of December, we receive a, an offering and in that offering, we, we received last year, we, had, we did an offering, and in the, in the one offering, we had, a, I believe, $136,000 come into that offering, and we gave, as a church, we gave all of that away. We gave it away to, to local first responders, we gave it away to uh, another church organization for church planting, we gave it away to uh, the Esther Home in, in Africa, and to, so they were ministering to, to girls, you know, on the streets, and we, we gave it away um, to expansion of my city care and, and being able to take care of the least of these in our in our community. And we gave it we gave it all away, and we're going to receive another offering uh, next week because <laughs> the needs aren't getting any lighter. Anybody knows that? <laughs> And we're going we're gonna to receive an offering next week, and we're going to separate that offering into two categories. We're going to separate into the one another's and the least of these. The one another's is we're going to receive a portion of that offering is going to go to a benevolent fund where we can take care of the one another's. Because I want to, I man, I have a vision, I have a heart that we're going to be a church where there's no need among them. It happened in the book of Acts, it can happen again. And that we can take care of when you're going through something, that we can be, as a church, we can take care of the one another's. And with the economy, the way where it's going, and taxes the way they're going, and inflation the way they're going, I just happen to believe that chances are there's going to be more need in, in the house than we've had before. And we need to be prepared. And so part of our offering is going to go to the one another. In fact, this is not a new present. This, this is... The same book that we started, Corinthians, Paul wrote this. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 16, he said this, regarding the relief offering for the poor Christians. In other words, the early church took an offering just like we're taking next week. That the, the scriptures set a precedent for this, right? That there's a relief offering for the poor Christians that is being collected. You get the same instructions I gave to the church in Galatia. In other words, all the churches participated in this. And he says, every Sunday, each of you make an offering 
and put it in safekeeping. And this was a season. And what we're going to do is we'll take the offering next week, but we're going to open up the month of December for our legacy offering. And it's going to go to the relief offering for the one another's and the least of these. And then he says this, be as generous as you can. He's writing this not just to the leaders. He's writing this to all the, all the members of the church. Be as generous as you can. He didn't set an amount. He didn't set an expectation. He just said, just do what you can for the one another's and the least of these. And so here's, here's my goal. I don't have a, a dollar figure in mind. I don't have an expectation in that, but here's, here's my goal. Is after all the scriptures that we've just read and all the, all the expectations of, of Jesus and, and of God and of us as believers, my expectation is simply this. Is, is it doesn't matter how much you give or how much comes in, what matters is participation. And I, I, want, I want each one of us, this is an opportunity, each one of us to be as generous as we can. And I don't, like, just each one of us, 100% participation. Can we do that? Like, we could just all just give something to take care of the one another's and the least of these. And we'll explain a lot more of that next week as to what that's all about. Um, let's be different. Parallel church, let's be different. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, the clarity of it. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts. Give us eyes to see the one another's, the least of these, the way you do. Give us ears to hear the needs, the hurts. And God, give us the heart of compassion that you have. Give us the wisdom to know how to respond and the courage to respond. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that religion makes a way for man to get to God. But Jesus already came to give you free access and he wants to give you relationship. And he said all you need to do to begin a relationship with Jesus is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead. And right there, you can begin to join the family of God. It's not joining a religion. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's not joining our church. It's a personal relationship with you and him. And it's a joining the one another's, the family of God. And if you've never prayed this prayer, you never opened your heart to relationship with Jesus, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Right now, it's so powerful. If you're praying this for the first time, right here, right now, you can begin relationship with Jesus. Let's pray this together. Everyone repeat this after me. If you're watching online, pray with me wherever you're watching from. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God, and I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, and my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, for accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes and bow your heads out of respect of the people around you. If you prayed this prayer for the first time and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today, would you just boldly raise up your hand and give me a wave and say, yeah, pastor, I prayed this prayer for the first time. I want to begin a relationship today with Jesus. Awesome. If you prayed this prayer the first time you're watching online, just click like on the comment below. It says, I have decided, and our team will reach out to you and give you a free Bible. It explains what this relationship's all about. Isn't God good? Come on.